Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're beginning The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis. We're on chapter 1. Chapter 1. The Preliminary Hardships. For the last few weeks I've had a great deal of sympathy for Noah. Not Noah Webster who wrote the English language and made it possible for me to earn a precarious living, but the original Noah who, as some of my readers are aware, made a historic cruise in a small boat. What his trials and tribulations may have been when he eventually got underway with a crew of griffins, dragons, dodos and all the other parlour animals of his time does not concern me at the present moment. It fills me with gloom to think of the job he must have had, getting them to report to the officer of the deck with their bags and hammocks. I can imagine a young rhinoceros who, up to the moment of sailing, had been keen to make the cruise, pausing ponderously at the foot of the gangplank, giving the architecture of the ark the once-over, and telling old Noah that his father won't let him go. What does Noah do? Look up another rhino when he should be supervising the activities of the chimpanzees in the rigging? Or does he decide to go short-handed? And I can picture a seagoing lion presenting his regrets at the last moment because business at his lair won't permit his absence for even a few months. Captain Noah must have had his difficulties with every last member of the ship's company, and the fact that he finally got underway with two or more of each species is greatly to his credit. I dwell on the subject a little more than might be considered necessary, because I've had a trial or two and a half a dozen tribulations getting together a crew for a cruise to Panama. Not that I planned to take a menagerie with me, my search was confined strictly to the human race, but I know, nevertheless, how Noah felt. Offhand, you would say that every American of the masculine persuasion who wasn't tethered to the grave by one leg would jump at the opportunity of sailing a yawl from Hellgate to Balboa. But as a matter of fact, I have proved by advertising and by personal solicitation, there are in fact only two along the entire Atlantic seaboard who can cut loose and make the trip. Circumstances permitting, these two will be sailing down the coast with me on the 28-foot auxiliary yawl Hippocampus before the month is out. When an ex-Navy friend wrote me that he was contemplating a cruise to San Francisco and was looking for a fourth man to make up a crew, I wrote twice, telegraphed once and put in a long-distance call to say that he could count me in. And I remember telling him and reiterating in each communication that I was all the more keen about the cruise because it originated with him and his two friends and so would not be subject to the usual withdrawals of crew members. Those were idle words. A week later... The four of us met in New York and enthusiastically discussed ways and means. Ways of finding a suitable boat and means for paying for it when we had located it. That done, I developed a sort of formula which I propounded to each of the three in turn. I said, I'm glad you took the initiative in suggesting this cruise because I know you won't back out before it starts. But are you determined to carry it through to the finish of the cruise or of the boat or of us? Each said he was full of determination, and we let the matter rest. It rested for two weeks while we corresponded about our adventures in boat hunting, and then one of them wrote as spokesman for the three that they had to abandon the idea. Money was tight and they were going to cruise overland to the Pacific coast. They were sorry, but business came before pleasure. I was sorry too, for by that time I had contracted with the magazine Motorboating to write a story of the cruise, and it didn't look like a single-handed proposition. 
I might have backed out myself if the March issue of the magazine hadn't appeared with an announcement of the forthcoming cruise, which put it distinctly up to me to find not only the boat, but an entirely new crew. I called on my three friends in their hometown to urge them to reconsider, and found them as much interested in roadmaps and a pair of patent tweezers which they planned to pedal en route to the Golden Gate, as previously they had been excited about charts and navigators' dividers. From that moment, I commenced to sympathise with Noah. Everybody else to whom I broached the subject wanted to go, and nobody could go. Some had family ties, others business obligations, and still others legitimate causes for keeping them at home. Whatever the cause, the effect was the same, and I was no nearer to getting my ship's compliment. Two or three who really could have gone unfolded the novel idea of writing a story about the cruise, and these I had to reject because of professional jealousy. My own. My search was complicated by reason of the fact that I am more of a motorboatman than a sailor, and this is to be a cruise with sail and power combined. I had to find at least one man of a crew of three who knew sailing from A to Z, so that my deficiencies in the general art of wind jamming might not prove fatal in a crisis. Had I listened to the advice proffered me at this moment, I would have withdrawn myself from the list of possibilities and turned the cruise over to any three professional sailors who cared to take it up. One friend told me all the harrowing details of coming through a West Indian hurricane with nothing but a life preserver to hide his embarrassment. Another advised me of the suicidal risk of putting to sea in a small boat without at least five seasons' experience behind me, and one and all gloomed and grouched so effectively that again I was on the point of giving up the cruise. But I kept in mind the good luck of other amateurs who have sailed the seven seas on faith and intuition, and I persisted to the end that I now have the ideal crew. The first mate is an ex-sub-chaser man with 20 years experience in sailing large and small craft. He will keep me from jibing when I ought to luff, and in time may hope to teach me the difference between a yawl and a catch. The second, who is co-owner of the hippocampus, is no more windjammer than I, but already he swings a wicked paintbrush and there is that about him which tells me that he'll be full of nerve and pep long after I'm too tired to haul on a sheet or lean my weight against the tiller. When it comes to an emergency, the crew will be there and the skipper may take his shut-eye with a clear conscience. My difficulties in obtaining a crew were coincidental with my efforts to procure a proper boat to put them in. At first blush, it seemed an easy task to find a yawl of 30 or 35 foot overall, powered by a 12 or 15 horsepower motor, and capable of holding together in a double reef breeze. My friend, who suggested the cruise, had in mind a sloop that could be had for $300 or $400, and he argued that because she had stayed afloat for 30 or 40 years, she could reasonably be expected to last through another season. But I preferred a craft with divided sail, and when he withdrew from the venture, I didn't bother to inspect his ancient packet. Nevertheless, I did spend a day in Newport, looking over a sloop of 20 summers that had been used successfully for pilot duty out of Narangaset Bay. She was a workboat with trim yachty lines, and as she bobbed at her mooring in a swell, working its way in from the sea, she had a nice buoyancy that was fascinating. A recollection stole over me of the good old days of the sub-chasers when we shot the heavens while holding on with our shoulder blades or lay prone on the charthouse deck to pour through the tables of Bowditch, and I wondered if I could be happy at sea in any craft that wasn't lively and frisky. On the point of signing along the dotted line, I was deterred by the suggestion of a friend that I give him opportunity to inquire 
into her soundness. He made inquiry of a disinterested boat builder, and I learned to my regret that the sloop was a whited and red-leaded sepulchre. She was good superficially, but her heart was false, and she could almost be guaranteed to open up when the nearest land was directly underneath me. That was enough. I have cruised the top side of the Atlantic and to some extent along both sides of it, but I have no desire yet to explore its shady side. Upon my return to New York from this fruitless expedition, I began a tour of investigation that was as disheartening as it was comprehensive. Whenever I got wind of a yawl that was within my means, I found that she had been sold the day before, and each time I lost consciousness at the sight of photographs and specifications of the ideal boat, I was brought to with the intelligence that she could not be bought for less than five figures. As I went from yacht broker to editor and from friend to philosopher, my spirits ebbed and ebbed, and on a hot sticky day of March, I abandoned the idea of the cruise. More from force of habit than from any remaining vestige of hope, I dragged my ex-seagoing legs to the office of another yacht broker and told him the story of my disappointed ambition. He listened sympathetically and agreed emphatically that there was not an auxiliary on the market of the length of hull and pocketbook that I specified. But, he continued brightly, I have the disposal of a 28-foot auxiliary yawl that answers your other requirements and if you care to come down in length and go up in price, there's not another boat in America that will better suit you. He reached into a drawer and withdrew plans, specifications and photographs of the 28-foot Helenet II and I knew from that moment that the cruise would go on. Details of inspection, of purchase, and of completing my crew would come later. I dated the history of my cruise from that moment. So now, while Helenette II, her name changed back to the original hippocampus, lies at a yard in New Rochelle waiting for launching on a high tide that accompanies the next full moon, I come to a description of the craft to whose timbers and rigging has been entrusted the task of taking us to the tropics. Already, after only a month's acquaintance with her, she has taken a place in my affections that no other boat has occupied, and my appreciation of her is growing day by day. When she changes hands again, as she must at the conclusion of the cruise, I know that I shall mourn the passing of a tried and faithful friend. Hippocampus, as she was christened when launched by J.E.G. Yalden of Leonia in New Jersey, was built in 1916 and is as new today as she was when water first kissed her keel. Designed by Fred Gola, Jr., she embodies his ideas of what a small seagoing yawl should be, and built by Niels Jakobsen of Nyack, New York, she boasts a ruggedness and honesty in which any yachtsman must glory. Mr. Yalden put much of his own time and enthusiasm into the building of his yawl, and personally satisfied himself that every stick that went into her was of the finest quality. After her completion, he sailed her for a few months and then, a multiplicity of other interests engaging his attention, he sold her to William F. Caesar of New York. If the origin of the hippocampus was auspicious, her ownership under Mr. Caesar was no less favourable, because he considered her the finest of the dozen or more boats that he was owned, and kept her at the top notch of her efficiency. He has sailed and lived aboard her for four seasons, and this spring she needed only paint, varnish and a rearrangement of her fuel and water tanks to fit her for a trip around the world. The hippocampus, as has been said, is a 28-foot auxiliary yawl, 
but she is the biggest ship of her inches that ever put to sea and stayed there until her owner was ready to bring her in. She has a beam of 9 feet 11 inches, a waterline length of 23 feet 3 inches and a draft of 5 feet. A keelboat with iron on her keel and shaped iron ballast inboard, she is declared to be as steady as a rock and as able as a battleship. If this is so, my first mate and I will miss that old sub-chaser role, but my second, who never saw anything in the war more exciting than a few big advances with a battery of French 75s, may rejoice that he won't have to learn to anchor himself to his bunk by personal magnetism. She is laid out with a chain locker and stowage space forward, communicating without bulkhead or partition with a large trunk cabin in which there are two full-length bunks. Between them forward is a yacht toilet, and on the starboard side aft is a narrow chest of drawers, followed by a full-length clothes locker. Tucked away in the clothes locker is an acetylene gas tank which lights a single jet on the starboard side. On the port side aft, the bunk is a miniature galley with a two-burner oil stove, and behind and around and underneath that stove there is more plate and pan shelfage than would be expected in a boat of at least twice 28 feet. Beneath the companionway ladder, and here we come to the part of the boat that reminds me of the Long Island Railroad slogan, This May Save Your Life Today, is a two-cylinder, two-cycle, eight to ten horsepower Palmer engine connecting to reversing clutch and 20 by 24 inch Thompson feathering propeller. The motor has been used long enough in five years to wear it in thoroughly and remove its pristine stiffness, but the former owner was a sailboatman primarily and used his power only when going through extremely narrow winding passages. The same procedure will be followed under the present ownership, but as I am unaccustomed to obeying the behest of calms and contrary winds, I may turn more often to the flexible, controllable power of gasoline. To that end, the 35-gallon water tank on the port side of the narrow cockpit has been converted to a gasoline tank, giving a total of 60 gallons fuel capacity and a cruising radius under power alone of about 200 miles. Two new 40-gallon tanks especially made for the hippocampus have been installed in the forepeak and with eight gallons of water available, we hope to struggle through a possible but unhoped-for tour at sea of as much as a month. If the boats were larger, the tank capacity would be greater, but under the circumstances we shall have to control our thirst or satisfy it otherwise than with water. Aside from the tank rearrangement, the only change in the boat's equipment is the installation of a pipe berth with kapok cushion. By this means, the sleeping accommodation has been comfortably increased to three, and inasmuch as one man will always be on watch at sea, the pipe berth will be required only in port. As a means of insurance against future trouble rather than because of present necessity, the yawl has been provided with a suit of new 10-ounce sails, which we expect to break out and bend on when we strike the northeast trades. The cockpit is no more than a narrow well, but there is ample deck room on each side of it, while abaft is a lazarette into which a two-month supply of provisions can conveniently be stowed. The hippocampus is controlled by tiller, and under jib and jigger is said almost to steer herself. The navigational equipment is no more than is required for a trip of this nature, but is perhaps a little more inclusive than the average for a boat of the length of the hippo, to give her at the outset her inevitable nickname. Most important is an eight-day chronometer purchased from the Navy and of the type used on sub-chasers and other small naval craft. If it runs according to form, it will have a losing rate for a week or so, a gaining rate for the succeeding two weeks, 
zero variation for the following nine or ten days, and so on. But if it does no worse, and is abused no more than the chaser instruments, it will see us through with satisfactory accuracy. Next on the list in point of interest comes an octant, which I purchased from an Austrian in Trieste shortly after the termination of the war. Were it stamped with a Teutonic name, I should have reason to distrust it, but as its point of origin was Cardiff, I believe it to have been taken from a submarined Britisher, and so respect it intrinsically as well as sentimentally. It played its part in a chaser race from Bermuda to New York in August of 1919 and is accustomed to the kind of warfare that any precision instrument encounters in small boat usage. In addition, we have a 4-inch boat compass of the spirit type, barometer, log, hack watch and the necessary charts and navigational publications and two of us are equipped with experience in piloting and in deep sea navigation. If memory, chronometer, octant and bow ditch all go by the board, the order of the day will be to head west until a large continent is sighted. If the compass mutinies, we shall try to distinguish sunrise from sunset and to some extent be guided by our bumps of location. For this cruise, it isn't going to be one of your deadly serious, methodical, undeviating voyages. It will be a get-there cruise, but we shall not be committed to any itinerary except that we shall run down the Atlantic coast of the West Indies, jump from Jamaica to Colón, and pass through the Panama Canal. We shall welcome advice as to course and intermediate stops from experts en route, and if we are particularly advised to go or to keep away from any island or stretch of coast, we shall stand off or head for it as the inclination moves us. We are not undertaking the cruise to prove anything or to establish any precedent in small boat sailing. Having no old worries to sail away from, we absolutely refuse to entertain any new ones regarding the strength of wind and treachery of currents ahead. We plan merely to take a voyage which in the aggregate is longer than the average, but which is composed of a number of three or four day jumps, such as any well-found boat might take if its owner had the time at his disposal. If the experience stimulates the sport of yachting, or if the passage of an auxiliary through tropical waters spreads the gospel of American motorboating, others besides ourselves will derive benefit from the cruise. We, however, shall take the cream of the enjoyment. Some of the friends whom I have acquired since I started work on the boat have been a little sceptical about the success of the expedition. They think, not without reason, that I'm a landlubber who is biting off more than he can digest in a seaway. But in my own defence I must say that I look a little less sophisticated than I am, even though my careless habit of speech sometimes betrays me. Yesterday, for instance, while I was rubbing down the parrel hoops of the mainsail, preparatory to varnishing them, I remarked casually that it would be awkward at sea to have to unstep the mast in order to replace a broken hoop by threading the mast through a new one. My shipmate replied encouragingly that we could use the power while this threading process was taking place and we let the conversation lapse. But an old salt who was standing by overheard us and with a pitying look in his eye volunteered the information that new hoops could be riveted in place without unstepping the mast. I accepted the information meekly but I know that old salt thinks I belong to the class of sailors who in passing under a fixed bridge will cut a hole in the bridge to give them headroom. Perhaps I do, but as soon as the moon gets full, if it ever does in these dry days, the hippocampus will take the water and her crew will head away from fixed bridges and advice and into the role of the deep blue sea. And after that, we shall see what we shall see. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. 
Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.